0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to our Thursday morning weekly Parsha Shear. If you're watching this on YouTube, you're welcome to join us live Thursday morning, 11 o'clock a.m. Los Angeles time. I begin the year with a weather report from the City of Angels where it is wet, gloomy, raining, and otherwise a miserable day in a beautiful city. We are studying this week Parsha's Turuma. And, of course, from here on, <clears throat> the Torah focuses on this great mitzvah that is given to us. <inaudible> the Mikdash, the Rabboi Neshulaylam says, Make for me a base mikdash, b'shochanti Hashem says, I will live among them, I will live among the Jews. Um, that mitzvah is given in the beginning of this week's parsha. Pretty much from here on, and really um, for the rest of Jewish history, actually, um, Yiddishkeit, all of Judaism, all of Jewish identity, all of everything, all of Jewish history will be wrapped up and completely locked up in this mitzvah of, of building a base of mikdash. At the time that they built it, at the time that Moshe Rabbeinu gave the Jewish people this mitzvah, they built, of course, a temporary base of mikdash. We refer to it as a Mishkan. It traveled with them through the desert for the next 40 years. It eventually made its way with them into Eretz Yisrael, where it stayed there for a couple of hundred years. Until the Mitz as we'll learn today, they built an eternal uh, home and structure for Hashem, based base of Mikdash, in Yerushalayim. The, there was two Batei Mikdash. The first one stood for 410 years, um, after which there was a 70-year Golis. Then they built a second base of Mikdash, which stood for 420 years. We are eagerly waiting and anticipating for the rebuilding of the third base of Mikdash. Please, God, speedily in our days. We daven for it every single day, multiple times a day. Uh, We daven that Hashem returned to Yerushalayim, to the base of Mikdash. We daven and we hope. Um, Once Hashem gave this mitzvah, so then actually... All of Yiddishkeit is supposed to be associated, not associated, is supposed to be channeled through this space of Mikdash, through this central headquarters, if you will, of all of Yiddishkeit and all of Judaism and all of Jews. Hashem spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu through the Mishkan, etc., um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. By the way, there's a beautiful commentary of the Balaturim on the word Veshochanti. Uh, Veshochanti, the Balaturim says, is a remes for both the first and second base of Mikdash. The first base of Mikdash, which stood for 410 years, as I mentioned, and the second base of Mikdash, which stood for 420. You see that both in the word Veshachanti. Veshachanti, Hashem says, I will dwell in this base of Mikdash. Well, where do you see it? He says the word Veshachanti is Veshachin Tof Yud, which means Hashem lived there uh, for 210 uh, for, two, for for four, excuse me, for 410 years, and then you have also in the word vishachanti which is tafchav, 420 years that Hashem would live in the second base of
1: Mikdash for 420 years. Okay. If you stop, yeah, I'm forget I'm forgetting a part of the Balaturim, but it's there in the word uh
0: also tafchav. Okay. If you stop an average Yid in the street and you ask them, what's the holiest place in the world? Um, of course, they'll tell you the holiest place in the world is, is Yerusha, the holiest city is, of course, Yerushalayim. And uh, what's the holiest place in the city of Yerushalayim? Of course, today, that we don't have a physical base of Mikdash is the place of Ravi, When the base of Mikdash stood, the base of Mikdash was the holiest place. Um, that's that's the place where we, where we, please God, where the third base of Mikdash will be, will be rebuilt. Um, the place of the Beis Hamikdash is the holiest place in the world. The Gemara says, even after the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed, Shekhinah lo the Shekhinah doesn't leave, doesn't fully leave uh, the place of the Beis Hamikdash. The Rambam tells us that the place where the Beis Hamikdash was built is the place where Avraham Avinu built the Mizbeach and was prepared to sacrifice Yitzchak. The Akedas Yitzchak happened in the place of the Beis Hamikdash. It's the place, same place, according to the Rambam, where Noach built his mizbeach when he came out of the teva and offered up sacrifices to Hashem. It's the same place where Cain and Hevel built their uh, built their mizbeachs and offered up their sacrifices to Hashem. It's the same place where Oded built a built a. Uh, the same place where offered up sacrifices to Hashem, and there, in that spot, is where he was created. Omrochachomim says the Raman, The Rabbis told us, "Adam in A person was created. God brought man into being on the very spot that would one day be Mekayim Kaparose, the place of his atonement. This was the spot of the Beis Hamikdash um, in Yerushalayim where Hashem, where Hashem, where Hashem wanted the Beis Hamikdash to be built. Of course, at this point in Parashas Truma, when the Eden are building the Mishkan, they're not in Eretz Yisrael. They're not going
1: to go into Eretz Yisrael for at least another forty for at least another forty years. <clears throat> when they came into Eretz Yisrael again, the Rambam
2: tells us they they moved the Mishkan to a city called Gilgal for fourteen years.
0: From there, it went to Shiloh. From in Shiloh. For the first time, it was more of a permanent structure, but still without a proper roof. It still had those ureas, uh, those curtains hanging on top of it as a roof because it was not yet the, the eternal, the final dwelling place of Hashem. In Shiloh, the Mishkan, uh, the Mishkan lasted for 309 years. There, in Shiloh, when Eli the Koin Godel died, they moved it to a city called Noiv, and from Noiv, they moved it to Givoin, when Shmuel died, and once they moved to Givon, uh, from Givon, they moved it eventually to Yerushalayim. To Yerushalayim. Um, no even Givon combined, says the Rambam, is another 75 years. So Altogether, we're talking about 309 plus 75 is 384, plus another 14, 394, 398, about 400 years that uh, the, Mikd- the, 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 the Mishkan was it was a temporary dwelling place, was still temporary even in Eretz Yisroel, before they actually moved it to Yerushalayim and built the eternal dwelling place, the base of Mikdash, uh, for Hashem in the city of Yerushalayim. Okay. Why did it take so long from the time Hashem gave the mitzvah? <clears throat> Why did it take so long until the base of Mikdash was finally built in Yerushalayim? We're talking about uh, basically from the time the Jewish people came into Ertz Yisrael until they were exiled from Ertz Yisrael was 850 years. From the time Yeshua brought them in until the first base of Mikdash was destroyed by Nabukad and they were forced into Golis is 850 years. The base of Mikdash only stood for 410 of those. That means there were 440 years that the Eden were living in Eretz Israel and they had not yet built a proper base of Mikdash for Hashem. Not a, not really an eternal structure um, in 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 in, in Yerushalayim. and the question is why? What took what took so long for them to actually build this base of Mikdash? Again, there were places like Shilo. The ramam says where it stood for three hundred and nine years. That's a, that's a significant amount of time. It's almost as much uh, time as the first, the whole first standing of the first base of Mikdash. But yet it took them over four hundred. Uh, for almost 450 years to build the first base of Mikdash, which then only stood for 410 years. Why so long? Why the Mishkan? Why a temporary dwelling place for Hashem for so long? Okay. So the story here is, the the background behind the story, if you will, here is, that although, as I just read from the Rambam, that the base of Mikdash was built in the place where Odom Rishon was created and where he brought Carbonus, and where Kain and Hevel brought Carbonus, and where Neuach brought Carbonus, and where Avraham Avinu put Yitzchak on the Akeda, etc., etc. The location of where exactly this was, where in Erchisrol this was, was actually unknown. It was not known where the Beis HaMikdash was supposed to stand. It wasn't even known when the Yidin came into Erchisrol, they didn't even know which city in Erchisrol to build the Beis HaMikdash in. They didn't know that it, was, that it was supposed to be in the city we refer to today as Yerushalayim. This was actually not known to the Jewish people. The Torah itself does not refer anywhere to this specific spot in Tanakh explicitly, accurately describing clearly where it is. Doesn't name the city. Uh, doesn't tell us where in Yerushalayim exactly it is. It's, it's sort of a mystery, if you will. In Chumash, in the Chumash itself, the place, the, the geographic location of the base of Mikdash, is only referred to as a Mokhaim Hashayiv ha Hashem, the place that Hashem chooses uh, to, to let His name dwell there. So again, the place has tremendous historic significance, of course. But when the Eden came into Eretz Yisrael, they didn't know where this location is. It was only discovered one night in a conversation, in a Torah study and conversation between David Amelech and Shmuel Hanavi and today i want to give you the the specifics i want to fill in the details of this time in history where the exact Mokem hamikdash is is located is determined and becomes known for all for all future for all eternity again it happened in the life of dovrahamelach while one night one particular night while he was in conversation with shmuel hanavi and i want to tell you the background uh, to this whole story, and and focus a little bit on this for a few minutes. Okay. So this this particular Gemara that I'm going to be basing the Shir on today is from Mesechta Zvhochim Daf on Amid The Gemara in Mesechta Zvhochim Daf is based on Shmuel Aleph Perak Yutes. Now let's set this up. What is the Torah talking about? What's going on here in Shmuel Aleph Perak Yutes? The background of this of this particular story. Okay, so the Torah tells us that Shaul HaMelech had very famously a Ruach ra. He had this evil spirit that would come upon him. The only thing that would relieve Shol from this Ruach ra that would provide him temporary relief from this, from this uh, spirit that would really torment him, was music. And Dovid HaMelech is hired by the king and the house of the king to stand in front of Sheol HaMelech to play on the harp. And the music of Dovid HaMelech would give Sheol relief, at least temporarily, from this, from this Ruach Ra. That's how Dovid is introduced, is brought to the palace of Sheol. But with time, Dovid's position takes on a life of its own. Dovid slays Goliath, David is eventually uh, married off to the younger daughter of Shoal called Michal. David is placed as a head of the military of Shoal HaMelech. David is very successful at war. All of the people are deeply in love with David HaMelech. And Shoal HaMelech is told by Shmuel the Navi, who anointed him and made him king in the first place. uh, Shaul Amalek is told that because of his failure to properly annihilate Amalek, the malucha royalty will be stripped from him and given to a colleague of his who is more worthy than him. Shaul is not actually at any point told by Shmuel explicitly that he's going to be succeeded by David. That actually is not specifically told to Shaul. It's hinted to in many ways, right? Because the Torah says that, that uh, Shoal tears Shmuel's garment. When Shmuel is walking away from him, and, and Shmuel, Shmuel tells him that his malucha, his royalty, is going to come to an end as Shmuel walks away. Shoal tears a piece of Shmuel's garment because he's so desperately holding on to him. Later, David cuts a piece of Shoal's garment. So, this is a hint that David is going to take over. Um, there's all sorts of hints, right, to show to show that David is going to take over, but at no point is this stated explicitly. Shoal is never told you'll be succeeded by David, but Shoal no, but Shul can sense that this is going to happen. The people fall in love with David Amelech, um, and Shol Amelech becomes deeply resentful, bitter, angry, vengeful against David. And, as is very famous,
2: spends years of his life hunting down, hunting down David and trying to kill him. Okay. It gets to a point where one day, in the middle, while David is
0: playing music in the palace for Shoal, to relieve him from this Ruach ro, from this evil spirit, Shoal actually lifts a spear to strike David while David is playing music for him. And throws it at him twice.
2: And both times, miraculously, David moves out of the way
1: and, and is spared. Okay. Shmuel Aleph Parakutez, the Torah
2: tells the following story. It becomes clear to David
0: that he has to flee Shoal's presence in Shoal's house to save his life. So he runs home to his wife again. His wife is one of the daughters of Shoal Amalek. So he goes home and he's hoping to stay out of Shoal's sight and out of Shoal's mind to save and spare his own life. Shoal has made it his life's mission to kill David. So he sends a bunch of men to David's house and he tells them, to stand by the door in the morning when he when he when he walks out of his house, grab him and kill him. Why did Sol tell his men? To wait overnight, Akasha. But that's what happened. Shoal says, Go to the go to in front of his house, wait for him. In the morning, when the door opens and he walks out, grab him and kill him. Tovid's wife, Shoal Amalek's daughter, becomes aware that Shoal, her father's men, are standing by the door. She tells her husband, You better run away. She helps him escape through a window. He flees, he, he flees, he escapes, and he manages to get out with his life, to to get away with his life. All right, the Torah says, very interestingly, the Torah says that David's wife uh, puts a statue in David's bed, covers the top part with goatskin, to pretend like David still is in the bed. Um, I I guess she was concerned that the people would barge into the house and they would try to grab him. She wanted to, to buy time for her husband. But anyways, the people wait all night, That that is the people, the guards that Shaul has sent. They wait all night. In the morning, they barge into the house. David's wife says, look, he's he's ill. He's not feeling well. He's in bed. He's sleeping. The soldiers go back to Shaul. They say, David's ill. Shaul says, I don't care. Bring him to me. They run back to the house. They take a look in the bed. And all that's there is a statue with a goat skin. And David's gone. Shaul is upset with his own daughter, right? Why did you let your husband, imagine? Why did you let your husband
2: escape? And, and Shaul's daughter says to him, David forced me, he threatened me, he told
1: me if I didn't let him escape, he would kill me. And so David flees. All right, where does David go?
2: The Torah says that he went to a city called Rama, and there
0: in Rama was Shmuel Hanavi, figuring that he would be safe uh, under, in the presence of Shmuel Hanavi. surely nothing would happen to him there. Okay. He is wrong. David is wrong. He's not safe, or at least doesn't seem to be safe, in the presence of Shmuel HaNovi, because Shaul HaMelech sends men to retrieve David from Roma, bring him back to Shaul, where again, he wants to kill him. And here the Torah describes something very interesting. The Torah says that when Shaul's men come to get David, come to to retrieve him, David is spending time in Shmuel HaNovi's yeshiva, Shmuel has, uh, you know, a, a yeshiva that he heads. He's, he's a rosh yeshiva. He's got a day job. He's a rosh yeshiva. And um, he's, he's the man who to, to retrieve David have got to go to this yeshiva to find him. Now, in this yeshiva, what did they teach? Well, they taught all sorts of things, right? They taught halacha. They, they taught gemara. They taught all the good Jewish stuff. They taught Torah. But they also taught something else in this yeshiva. And that is they taught prophecy, Navua show this was a special yeshiva where shmuel was training the next generation of prophets and the Torah describes the whole thing the way he would stand in an elevated position and he would teach these students how to be prophets now when a person experiences prophecy they lose all sense of themselves the Torah says the the prophets would, would lie down on the floor, they would remove their garments, they would, they would have these like out-of-body experiences. And Shmuel is teaching these people how to do it. The understanding is that David is also spending time in this yeshiva, if you will, among the students learning how to experience this Nirvana. This, this okay. So Shoal's men arrive, they want to retrieve David, they walk into the yeshiva, and of course, everybody is learning to be nabim. So as these guards walk in, they too fall under the auspices, under the aura of Shmuel and the Navim the who are there, and they
2: too start saying they also become engulfed and enveloped in this Navua process. And they too start to say Nebuah. Needless to say, they don't take David back to the palace of Sheol. They stay there, they say Nebuah.
0: Sheol sends a second group, the same thing happens. Shoal sends a third group. The same thing happens. They cannot bring back David because every group that arrives falls under the aura of Shmuel HaNavi and they prophesize as well. So the Torah says, Shoal decides he's had enough. When I was When I was learning this, it reminded me of what we spoke about last week, right? Remember where where they, three groups of people are sent to retrieve Unculus. And Last week's Shia, we learned about Unculus, how Unculus was the nephew of the Roman Caesar, Hadrian, and Hadrian wants to bring him back to Rome, back to the palace. So he sends group of, groups of people to retrieve him, but every group that arrives is, is, is converted. Uh, Unculus prevails upon them to convert to Yiddishkeit. Three times the Gemara says it, it happened. So you have a, it's not, it's in, in some ways it reminded me, one story reminded me of the other. Here you have a similar thing where these groups are employed to go and retrieve David, and as they arrive, as they get there, they fall under the aura of Shmuel Hanavi, they prophesize as well,
2: and the mission to retrieve David fails. Okay. Shaul, the Torah says, becomes desperate, he sees nothing he's doing, all the men that he's sending are not
0: successful at bringing back David. He becomes desperate to end this. He wants to, he, he, he feels, Shul feels that David is the source of all of his pain. He wants to get rid of it, right? He's, he's doing what we call in psychology, projection. He's, he's blaming, he's putting, he's found a parking spot for all of his, the stuff he's, he's wrestling with. It's all David
2: Amalek's fault if we get rid of him. We get rid of the problem. And so he, Shoal himself, picks himself up,
0: travels to Ramah with the intent of killing David. And the Torah says something wild. The Torah, Shmuel Aleph, Pericutes, the Torah says, when Shoal arrives, he too falls under the auspices of the Nevoah of Shmuel. And he too experiences Navua. He falls on the floor. He removes his garments. He removes his royal garments.
2: And the spirit of Hashem speaks to him. The prayer
1: says, All day and all night. And then, David moves on. Sheol goes back to the palace. The Redifice, the persecution
0: of Shoal against David, continue and the Torah goes on to tell the story from there. Multiple attempts are made by Shoal to kill David. All of them, of course, eventually fail. In the end, Shoal dies in war and David, of course, takes over from him and becomes David Melech Yisroel, about whom we still say is Chai
1: All right. Says the Gemara, Masech Tazvokim, Taf Nundaled, Omid Beis.
2: But you got David Benoyis Baroma. is
0: informed, says the pasuk, that David HaMelech is in a place called Noyes Roma. Says the Gemara, typical Gemara style. Says the Gemara Benoyis Baroma. I don't understand. There's a city called Roma and there's a city called Noyes. They're not the same city. The Torah until now has told us that Shmuel and David are in Roma. What's this business Noyes Baroma? What's this business that, that they were they were in Noyes in Roma? Ah, says the Gomorrah Masech Tzvachim. Noyos doesn't mean a city called Noyos. Noyos means elevation. Noyos means elevated. Noyos means beauty. Says the Gomorrah, it was that night that, Sh- that, Sh- that Shmuel Novi and Dovid HaMelech
2: discovered, located the place of the Beis Ha-Miknash. Through Torah learning, through deducing it from Pesukim,
0: they came, to the, they, came to the, they came to the conclusion that the base Hamikdash would be located in the highest place of Eretz Yisroel, not actually in the highest place, but right underneath the lowest place in the world, bank Sefer of Shochin between the, between the shoulders, if you will, between the two highest locations. They, they searched through Sefer Yehoshua to find which place in Eretz Yisroel is identified as the highest place in all of Eretz Yisroel, they see that there's only one place in, in there's only one place with regard to Shevet Binyamin where the Torah describes the borders of Shevet Binyamin only as elevated places, not as as low points. They must be. It must be in, in the tribe in the portion of Eretz that was owned by Binyamin. Which one is the highest point in Jerusalem? Which is the highest point in Jerusalem? haram Amayria, and right below that, excuse me, that is the the space the spot which is located determined. By Shmuel and Dovida Melech as the place of the Basemakesh. Okay. Now, why is this so incredibly significant? The commentaries explain. The commentaries explain it. They say, the commentaries say, think about what's going on here. Again, Doveda Melech is fleeing for his life from Shoal. Shoal is trying to kill him. So he runs to Shmuel Hanovi, who's living in Roma. Shmuel is the Navi, Shmuel is, is, is the spiritual conscience of Kali's He knocks on the door of his house. Shmuel and lets him in. The Torah says that night, David told him everything that was going on, everything that had happened. Now, this is, of course, not the first time that David and Shmuel are meeting. This is at least the second time because Shmuel and Navi had already
2: secretly anointed David the as king beforehand. They talk all night about what it is that david is going through and then
0: together they sit down and they determine the precise and exact location
2: of the base arch okay so the commentaries the commentaries make two observations or they ask they ask two questions if you will in terms of
0: this in terms of this particular story of Shul, of Shmuel and David locating the place of the Bech around the time that, that all of these delegations from Shol are sent or dispatched. They become prophets. Even Shol himself becomes, be, becomes a prophet. There's, there's a modern day Hebrew expression when somebody seems to ascend to a position that they don't deserve or that they're not worthy of uh, or that seems to be out of place for them. There's a modern-day Hebrew expression called "agam Shaul b'neviim." It's just something you'll sometimes hear Israelis say. "Agam Shaul b'neviim." It's actually a quote from the pasuk here in Shmuel Aleph Yutes, where when, when, when Shaul Amalech is Hagam Sha'ul when Sha'ul is experiencing prophecy and he's lying on the floor, huve, the Torah says people were saying "agam Shaul b'neviim." Shaul is, all, is also a prophet. Commentaries seek to, to scratch the surface of what it is that's going on. And what's the significance of all of this prophecy? And what's the significance of saying that Dovina Melech at this moment when he was fleeing for his life comes to Shmuel Hanobi and, and,
2: and, uh, you know, and they, lo- they locate the place of the Beis Amish. Okay.
1: So here's how they explain it. Here's how they explain it. Dovina Melech comes to Shmuel. In Roma. He tells him everything that's been going on in his life.
0: He tells him that he killed Goliath. He tells him that he married Shoal daughter. He tells him that he that Shoal HaMelech is jealous and vengeful and hates him. That Shoal gets these evil spirits. He tells him that Shoal is actively trying to kill him. Has literally, has literally
2: thrown a sword against him twice. And he's only been saved by a
1: miracle of Hashem. I wasn't there, but I think what the commentaries are saying is that Dovid
2: HaMelech asked Shmuel Hanavi a simple question. He said to him, I don't understand what's going on here. You, Shmuel Anovi,
0: you were the one who appointed Shoal as king in the first place,
2: by the word of Hashem, of course. But you were the emissary, you carried it out. You were the one who anointed me, David HaMelech, as king. You, Shmuel Novi were the one who told Sheol HaMelech
0: that kingship, that royalty will be stripped from him and his family, that he wasn't deserving of it because he hadn't fulfilled the word of Hashem. You, Shmuel Novi were the one who told him to go and wipe out Shmolek.
1: The instruction he fails to carry out which ends so in disaster. David tells Shmuel Novi. If that's the case, you're responsible for everything
0: that's going on. Now Shoal is angry. Now Shoal is trying
2: to kill me. A ruach roh comes over him. I'm running for my life. David probably sat there and said to Shmuel, I want you to take some responsibility
0: for what's going on. Save me. Help me. This man is the king of all of the Jewish people, and he's persecuting me with everything he's got. And you're sitting here in Roma, in the yeshiva
2: with a bunch of students, teaching them prophecy? Look what you've done here.
1: He's king. I'm king. He's jealous of me. He's trying to kill me.
2: You told him that he wasn't going to be king, that kingship would be removed from his family. David says to Shmuel HaNavi, it's all you. Now I'm here, I'm running for my life. Tell me, please, what are you
0: going to do to save me? What are you going to do to help me? Do you know that we do not find here in Shmuel HaNavi that Shmuel HaNavi gives him any response? We don't find that Shmuel responds at all. All we know is that the Gemara says, the two of them sat all night and and, and 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 refused to sleep until they
1: figured out what was the exact spot of the Beis HaMikdosh. How is that an answer? So the commentaries explain it. The commentaries say, look, Shmuel
2: HaNovi told David Amelech, here's my answer.
0: I cannot tell you why you're experiencing this type of persecution. I can't. I cannot tell you why Hashem makes us go through all of the
2: things that we go through in life. These questions are for Almighty God alone. I don't know. But Shmuel tells David, I can give
1: you the right perspective on this. And if you hold on to this perspective, you won't fail. You see, my friends,
2: Sometimes in life, we're so busy fleeing from things.
0: We're so busy running away from things. We're so busy trying to escape stuff that we don't really care where we go. Just take the pain away. We're so busy uh, trying to, to escape things that bother us that we forget that there's a purpose to all of this. We
2: forget that in our in our running, we have to run somewhere, not
1: just away from something. Shmuel told David, I stand by every word I said.
2: I anointed you as king and you will be king. You will be king over Klael You will be king in Eretz Yisrael. You will be a great and mighty conqueror. You will usher
0: in an era for the Jewish people that will be a golden age. I stand by everything I said. Mark my words, said Shmuel. You will survive. You'll be okay. Shoal will not kill you. And you
1: will be David Melech Yisrael. But let me ask you a question. Have you thought about what kind of a king you're going to be?
2: Have you thought about what you're going to do with that gift of royalty? Have you thought
0: about what is the divine purpose in your being king, because you know being king doesn't take away your free choice, and you can squander it and waste it, and you can spend your whole, you can spend so much time and energy protecting your job that you you can forget to actually do your job. Do you see? Asked Shmuel to David, do you see a divine purpose in why
2: you were chosen to be king? What are you gonna do with this royalty? Hashem has given you a
1: gift. You're gonna do something with it. What is it? There's a, great, there's a great, great Hasidic analogy. I'm, I'm sure many of you have heard it before,
0: but it's worthwhile to repeat at this point. They said there was a Hasidic Yid. They called him Rabendal Futafas. He was exiled by the, by the communists to Siberia for many years. And there one day he encountered among the, among the convicts, among
2: the inmates, discovered somebody who claimed he was a tightrope walker. The people, you know, they didn't have YouTube in those days.
0: The people didn't necessarily believe him. What, what's a tightrope? They'd never heard of such a thing. What's a tightrope walker? I can tie a rope from one place to the other, and I can walk across. They said, yeah, right. Anyways, legend has it that one day he finds a piece of rope. And he, and he succeeds at tying it between two elevated points. And he tells the people, look, I'm a little out of practice. Give me a couple of hours to warm up. But you'll see I'll be able to walk across. A couple of hours later, he calls the inmates among them, this Hasidic Yiv, and he says, I'm ready for my performance, watch me.
2: And they watch him climb up, you know, a tree or whatever it was, a pole,
1: and actually walk across the tightrope and walk back. And then, of course, if any of you have seen
2: (coughs) (coughs)
0: performances of tightrope walkers, once they walk across a couple of times, then they do all sorts of things while they walk across, right? They, they juggle things, they lift one foot, they lay, they throw their arms around. They, you know, they, they can do all sorts of tricks while they walk across. And for hours, this guy keeps them entertained. They're mesmerized by this, never seen anything like that before. Anyways, after a couple of hours, they give him a standing ovation, he gets off the rope and, uh, you know, they go back to their cells. On the way back to the cell, Rob Mendel pulls this guy over and says to him, you know, I watched you for a couple of hours together with everybody else. And I noticed something. I made an observation and I wanted to ask you if my observation is correct. He says, I noticed that as long as you walk the tightrope, all the parts, different parts of your body were moving in a million different directions. But the only thing that never shifted were your eyes. You focused on your point of destination, your target place, where you were headed to. You seemed to concentrate on it completely and solely to the exclusion of all
2: other existence. And while every other part of your body moved, your eyes never did. When you got to the end,
0: and turned around and had to shift your focus from one side to the other side, I noticed, he said, that you shifted your focus as fast as possible to the opposite side of the rope, locked in on it. And the moment that you turned
2: around seemed to be your most vulnerable moment. And the tightrope walker says to him, you're absolutely correct.
0: In order to walk that tightrope, I need to focus on my point of destination, concentrate on it, clear my mind of everything else, see nothing else other than that point of destination.
2: And then no matter what I do with the rest of my body, I will not fall as I walk back and forth. No problem.
0: All right, thank you, Sidraman. And of course, being a Chassidah Shiyid and
2: a Torah Yid, he starts to think to himself, well, what can we learn from this?
1: What is it here to teach us? Whenever a Jew goes through something, whatever it is that we go through,
0: because there is a purpose to it, because there is is an objective, a divine mission, something that needs to be achieved through it, the person, the Jew, needs to do their best to focus on what it is that's supposed to be accomplished. What is the destination point? Clear their mind of
2: everything else and say, this is what I'm here to accomplish. This is what I'm going to do. Everything else is God's business, not mine. Shmuel Anovi says to David's, stop telling God how big your problems are.
0: Start telling your problems how big God is. Stop telling me what you're running away from. Start telling me what you're running to. I'm telling you you're going to be king.
2: King, to be king is a very powerful position. You'll be the most powerful man
1: in the world. No? You're going to do something with it? And if yes, what is it? And said, are you kidding me?
0: There's only one thing I really want. I want to live in the house of Hashem. I want to be the one to build an eternal structure for Hashem. I want to build a on Mikdosh.
2: Says Shmuel HaNovi, if that's what you want,
1: that's what you need to focus on. So they sit down together, and they go back
2: to the books, and they study, and they seek, and they inquire.
0: And by divine, provi- by, by divine prophecy and through their own toil and toil and learning, the exact spot of the base of Mikdush is revealed. That. Now, I should point out, historically, Yerushalayim is also called Ir David, the city of David. And the reason for that is because until David HaMelech, amazingly enough, the city of Yerushalayim had not yet been completely captured by the Jews. It was not seen at that point, it was not seen as a very... Until that point, it wasn't seen as a very significant city. In fact, it, it was a difficult city to work with because it was difficult to, to bring water into the city. And so, you know how it worked in those days: if you didn't have water in a city, <clears throat> the city was not particularly valuable. There was no agriculture; was not possible, and so it wasn't considered. Uh, it wasn't considered uh, high real estate. Amazingly, David Hamelech is the one who captures the city of, y- of Yerushalayim, who, who brings a very famously. It's, if you still till today, if you go to Jerusalem. And, and you go and, and you go on the right tours. They can show you the irrigation system that David Melach cultivates to bring water into the city of Yerushalayim to make it the flourishing city that it is. It's all actually historically, even physically, to the credit of David Melach. Not to mention spiritually, David Melach is the one who, who, who locates the significance of the city, the holiness of which, of course, runs throughout all of runs for all eternity. Shmuel told David, if that's what you want, then that's what you go for. If you want to build a house for Hashem, then make that your life's mission. Start focusing, start focusing on that.
2: Okay. I believe when the Torah says that the next day, Shola Melech sends guards
0: to retrieve David, and the guards also fall under the rapture. They fall under the auspices of Shmuel Hanavi, And they do start saying prophecy three times until Shoal himself arrives. And he too falls under the auspices, under the aura of this prophecy. Although it doesn't last. But What is this prophecy? To one degree or another, they can see, they can feel that the process that David HaMelech is engaged in, is involved in here, is the one that's going to give the Jewish people the gift of Yerushalayim and the Beis Hamikdash that's going to last for all eternity. Although the first Beis Hamikdash was temporary, and the second Beis Hamikdash is temporary, two thousand years later we're still davening to Hashem three times a day. Please, God, speedily in our days, the third Beis Hamikdash will be rebuilt in Yerushalayim, the place located by David HaMelech, where it last forever. Whoever comes there to Shmuel to retrieve David falls under the, the spell, if you will, of this magical ex- divine experience that's taking place, where David is in the process of, of, of sowing the seeds of an eternal base of Mikdash that will last forever. I should point out, of course, that although David himself doesn't build the base of Mikdash, it's his son Shlomo who builds the base of Mikdash, but David again captures the city. David facilitates the function of the city by bringing in water. David lays the foundations for the base of David even digs tunnels under the Harabais, under the mountain, which would later be used to store the Caleb of the base of Mikdash while the base of Mikdash was being destroyed. And everything that his son, Shloem Amalek, does is done only based on the, on the plans and the initiative taken by, t-
2: taken by David Amalek. In the process of this, we discover a prevailing truth, uh, one, of the,
0: one of the Torah themes, if you will, which is very painful and, and yet very true. It was bedavka, it was specifically in what could be described as the lowest moment of David the Melech's life. One of the lowest moments, anyhow, where his mamash is he's fearing for his life, he's being persecuted by, by, by the king, his own father-in-law you know so to speak wants to do nothing more than kill him his own wife has to make up stories and lies about about how she, how she herself was threatened by
2: david in order that the father not kill her it's bedakha here that the seeds are planted for the base of mikdash
0: and and and, and the geulah and the eternal the, the eternal future of clan Yisrael and the eternal home of Hashem. it was like it was like David HaMelech had to get to a point where he lost all sense of self. You know, like the Medrash says very famously, David was supposed to be a, a stillborn, right? Meaning he lost all sense of his own self, his own ego, becomes completely just a conduit for Hashem in order to merit uh, finding, locating the place of the Beis Hamikdash um, that, that 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 would be Hashem's house for all eternity. Next time you go to Jerusalem. And you stand by the Koisel Moab. Please, God, the next time you go to shalim, we should merit to stand by the third base of Mikdash. But the next time you go to shalim and stand by the Koisel Amarov, if Mashiach hasn't come yet, just remember that the place, the decision, the discovery, excuse me, not the decision, the discovery that this is the holiest place in the world, the place where Odom Rishon was created and brought Korbonus, Ayin and Hevel, Noya, Havrom and yitzchak all happened at this place. The discovery of this came to the Jewish people through David HaMelech, at a time when David HaMelech felt like everything behind him was threatening him. And the only thing he had to look forward to, he, he was reminded by Shmuel Novi. the only thing he had to look forward to was, was, was this idea of building the base of Mekdash. Okay. I want to conclude because I have a few minutes left. I want to conclude, we're now already in the month of Adar, connecting this to something very interesting that I discovered recently in Megillah Sester. This, In other words, this, this idea that the Geula that the redemption is born at the most difficult of moments, sometimes seemingly under the harshest of conditions, and, and, and what seems like under the most impossible circumstances. Dafka there, Dafka there.
2: That's when the light of the Gola is born, and the Jews, the Jews have something to, to, to look forward to. In Megillah Esther, there's that famous passage where Mordechai becomes aware begins to be
0: in of Megillah Sester. Mordechai, the Torah says, becomes aware of the decree of Haman against the Jewish people. And he tears his clothing. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. And he goes out into the streets and he cries a loud and
2: bitter cry. He comes to the gates of the palace of the king. He couldn't go in any further, the Torah says, because he was wearing sackcloth. And over there at the gates, he's, he's literally screaming in the streets. The Jewish people have all been sentenced to death. Esther, at this point, is blissfully unaware of what's going on. She doesn't know.
0: In fact, she asks Mordechai, what's the simple reading of the Megillah? She asks Mordechai, what's going on? But her narois, her maidservants, and her sarissas, her, 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 her chamberlains, they come and they tell her that, that this friend of yours, this, this uncle of yours, Mordechai, his clothes are torn, he's wearing sackcloth and ashes, and he's standing by the gate and he's screaming. The Posick says, in what is probably the only place in Megillah, Esther, where the Torah actually describes Esther's emotional state of being, how she felt, the Torah says that Esther became very, very afraid. She quaked. Her whole body trembled. Tremendously, she, 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 her whole body, she moved into a state of tremendous fear. Most commentaries
1: learn the word comes from the word which means fear and dread, ripped, ripped hold of her. In the Gemara, there are two opinions
2: as to what this, what this means. Again, on a simple level, it means she was
0: afraid, but the Torah doesn't just say she was afraid. It says,
2: In the Gemara, there are two opinions on how to interpret this midrashically. Continue. The Gemara says, comes from the
0: word, which means cavity. A cavity, a, a, a vacancy, a void was in her body. What was the nature of this void? Two opinions. One opinion says, she lost control of, of, her, of her digestive system, of her bowel system. She lost control of her physical body. She soiled she herself with fear. One opinion. The other opinion is Shapir Sonida. She lost control of her menstrual system. Again, out of great fear. Very well known. Then recently I studied a Midrashic interpretation on this which literally
2: blew me. A third
0: interpretation, says the Medrash, is Shahipil Ubra, that she miscarried. Again, from great fear, from, from trauma. Although she doesn't know what is going on, but the idea, just being told that Mordechai, her, her uncle, according to some opinions, her husband, is standing at the gate and crying sackcloth and ashes. The trauma of hearing about this caused her to lose her pregnancy. Now, I read this in my mind when, why? Well, let's think this thing through. At this, at this stage in the story of Megillah Esther, where, where the Jews have been sentenced to annihilation, Esther's been living with the king for around five years, right? She becomes his queen in the seventh year of his reign, and, and the decree against the Jews is in the 12th year of, of, of Ahasuerus' reign. So she's been married to this Rosha Ahasuerus for five years. So if she were pregnant, it would be safe to assume that the father of the baby is Achashverosh. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, let's think this thing through. In the end, in the end of the whole story, after the story of Purim is over, Esther and Achashverosh remain husband and wife. Esther and Achashverosh eventually do actually have a child. His name is Daryovesh, or according to some opinions, Kairish or according to other opinions, it was the same person. But they do have another king, the next Persian king, the successor of Ahasuerus. Daryovesh is the child of Ahasuerus and Esther, Ayid. And he's the one who tells the Jewish people, gives the Jewish people permission to go back to Yerushalayim, finish the construction of the second base of Mikdash, which they actually do. He's the one who who ushers in the era of the Jewish people rebuilding finally the second base of Mikdash, which lasted longer than the first
2: base of Mikdash, 420 years. Okay. So if Esther is pregnant at this stage of the story,
0: then it's safe to assume that had she actually delivered that child, then that child would have been the one, the child of Achashverosh, would have been the one to take over, right? You know I would work with these monarchs. It's always the oldest child that takes over. And if
2: it was destined, since it was destined upon the Jews to go back there to sell and rebuild the second base of Mikdash, then this would have been the one. So when it says that Esther miscarried out of fear, let's not underestimate
0: the significance of, 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 of this miscarriage. We're talking about the loss of life, of the child who would have sent the Eden
2: back to Eretz Tzatzel to finish rebuilding the second base of Mikdash. A Moshiach of
1: sorts. And yet, in this moment of fear, the unborn baby, the, the, the fetus, its life is lost. And only after the whole story of Megillah Sester.
0: Once the Jewish people, once Homan is killed and his 10 sons are killed, and the Jewish people have a Yom Tuf called Purim, and the Jewish people, and the, the Yom Tov of Purim is given to them forever, and the Jewish people celebrate, etc. Esther stays in the palace of the king. Another, she becomes pregnant again. Another baby, this time the baby Borah Hashem survives. A child is born, and he allows the Jewish people to go to Erzestrong. How much is the distance in time between the two pregnancies? I don't know. That, that, to tell you the truth, I, I, I don't know. But um, be it as it may, this, the Medesh says clearly, that this baby, that this unborn baby was lost. Now, I'm, read, I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, okay, let's think about this. If Esther is already pregnant, before the Gzaira, that's because that's what I mean, she was pregnant before the decree of Haman. And Hashem said, no, this baby is for whatever divine reason, this, this pregnancy will end Ramanlah's line in miscarriage. That means that before Hashem allows the individual who's going to send the Jews back to Earth soul to rebuild the base of Mikdash,
2: to be born, before this individual is born, the Jewish people have to have to face a decree of annihilation. Why? Why, if an individual who has the power and the ability to restore the Eden back to Israel is already in existence, she's already in Esther's womb, why does Hashem take the life of that unborn baby only to let the Jewish people go through the whole decree of Haman and and, and all the rest of it,
0: and then a new baby has has to be conceived and born, and and, and He should tell the Jewish people to go back to Israel? Why? Of, Of course, I don't know why. But what's the significance of it, it seems? It seems that the Rabbeinu Shalom wanted the Jews to go through this moment, through this era in history of facing these decrees of Haman because of the tshuva, because of the spiritual awakening that it arouses the Jews to. And only then, only after the Jews have gone through that moment of tshuva, the triumph, only after they found it within themselves to no longer be afraid of Haman, only after they fought, that Mordechai has, has has impacted, has prevailed, has influenced the Jewish people to be like him, only then is the savior, so to speak, of the Jewish people conceived and born,
2: not before. At first, the Jewish people have to go through a moment where their very
1: existence seems like it's going to be annihilated and obliterated. I wonder, actually, this is my
0: own thought. I wonder if it isn't similar to the concept of Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David, which we talk about so famously, right? Mashiach ben Yosef starts the process and then passes, and Mashiach ben David eventually redeems the Jewish people. I wonder if these two children of Esther cannot perhaps be compared to like Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David, one which dies in its, st-
2: one which passes in its before it's even born, like David HaMelech was supposed to. The other born, born, emerges from the
0: womb and eventually empowers the Jewish people to go back to Eretz Yisroel. Okay. Be it as it may, the Torah makes it clear that before the, before the Jewish people could go back to Eretz Yisroel and rebuild the second base of Mikdash, they had to go through this terribly dark moment in the story of Purim that was necessary for whatever reason
2: uh, for their teshuva process in order to merit the rebuilding of the second base of Mikdash. Let's conclude. The of HaMikdash that was built by David and Shloyma,
0: that of HaMikdash is eternal. Yes, it goes through temporary lapses, right, where it, it, it lays in, in ruins and destruction for 70 years or for 2,000 years. But we haven't given up on it, not for a second. We are 100% confident and sure that the Rabbeinah Shlomo will one day help us and facilitate and we will rebuild it. Absolutely. Just like David and Shlomaz Melucha, their own royalty is forever. The Beis HaMikdash is forever. But like the moon that's born out of a moment of complete darkness, and like David Melach himself, who was supposed to be a stillborn and is gifted the gift of life. And like the Jewish people in the story of Purim, who are sentenced to complete annihilation, and like we experience in every generation where our very existence is threatened, from the darkest and most painful moments of our history comes the greatest and most powerful redemption and revelation. It was the moment that David and Malach fled for his life that he found the place of the base of Mikdash. It was specifically after the Jewish people had gone through the the, the decrees of Oman that Achashverosh and Esther produced the child that brings them back to, to, to Eretz Israel and to Yerushalayim and allows them to rebuild the second base of Mikdash. And it is precisely after 2,000 years, Rahman Islam, that the Jewish people have been on Golis that Hashem, please God, will send us. Our final, our final and eternal redeemer. From the day Hashem said, v'shachanti Hashem says, make for me a base of Mikdash and I will live in it. From that day and on, the Jews are supposed to have a physical structure. It's supposed to be a literal, physical place where Hashem's presence rests. We're supposed to be bringing physical karbanis, lighting a physical menorah by the physical Goddel in a physical location in Eretz Yisrael called Yerushalayim. That's the way it's supposed to be in the most literal sense. We've never stopped for 2,000 years. We've never stopped being confident that with Hashem's help, we will return there speedily in our days. And until the Rabbonu Shalom brings us, brings us back to Yerushalayim, we never will. We never will stop davening, pleading, and begging, and believing that it will happen speedily in our days. After everything we've been through, surely now is the time. And when the Jewish people do go through difficulties and, and challenges and dark and difficult moments, not only does it not discourage us, but quite the contrary. We know from our past that that's where the greatest gifts, the greatest secrets, the greatest heights that the Jewish people reached It was from these
1: darkest of moments. That's where they were all born. Have a wonderful Shabbos.